Well, good afternoon, everyone. It's great to have so many of you attend this afternoon. We're glad to have you. My name is Gary Harbat. I'm from the client success team at QuickMed Claims, and I'm joined by my esteemed colleague, uh, Chuck Humphrey, up in our Danville office. I'm in Pittsburgh, and we appreciate you taking time from your day uh, to attend uh, our little talk on the American Rescue Plan. Lots of good information here, lots of information to share as we go through today's program. Um, just wanted to do a few housekeeping things before we start. Uh, this is a webinar format. Sadly, you're forced to look at me and Chuck. Um, so I, I, we apologize for that. Uh, they didn't have anybody younger, so they got me and Chuck to do this today. Um, but nonetheless, we'll do a good job for you. But if you do have questions along the way, um, at the bottom of your Zoom video screen, you'll see a little icon that says Q&A. Please feel free to use that, type your question in. Uh, we'll be glad to answer them for you as much as we can. We'll try to get through all the questions as we do through the presentation today. So we may stop from time to time as we go, go through. Um, please understand this information was compiled uh, from sources, including the American Ambulance Association and other information. Uh, please understand that please don't let it be construed as legal advice. Uh, we would encourage you, if you do have legal questions, to consult your legal professional uh, that is involved with your specific organization. So with that, I will say good afternoon to my colleague, Chuck. Chuck, how are you? I'm doing well, Gary. Thank you. And uh, it's great to be with everyone and with you here to talk about this um, another round of legislation. <laughs> That's all we've done for the last year is one program after another, but it sure is uh, an interesting time we live in. It seems to go on and on too, Chuck, doesn't it? And uh, some good news, some uh, uh, bad news, but overall it's, uh, it's important that we go through this. And as an organization, we're committed to letting both our clients and friends uh, know about these things as best we can. Uh, QuickMed Claims is an organization that believes very strongly in offering programs such as this uh, to, to our clients to help better educate them as to what's going on around them, especially given this public health emergency that we continue to exist in this day. Um, I'm actually working uh, from home. Chuck's in the office today. Um, at our new office, we have a brand new studio, but sadly, uh, a few days ago, I was exposed. So I've been working out my, uh, my time here in my family room at home. So um, we'll, we'll do our best. I'm working from a 13 inch screen. Chuck's a little better, but overall, I think uh, we'll provide you with a good sound program. And again, any questions, uh, please don't hesitate to ask. If you look at the first screen as we open it, you guys may want to snip that or cut it out in some way. There's good information that can be derived from all those websites there. Uh, there's also a helpline that you can use. Um, and uh, they've worked for us through this public health emergency uh, in, uh, in gaining information. So, uh, you know, feel free to cut that out before we move on. But other than that, let's get moving here, Chuck. Let's go head on. So let me start out here and then Chuck will carry the ball for a good portion. So we're talking about HR 1319, of course, the American Rescue Plan of 2021. And this is actually a very voluminous document. It's 600 pages long. It provides incredible amounts of information, uh, some of which is related to EMS and some of which is not. So we've tried to really um, 
take most of the information that is relevant to emergency medical services and convey that to you today. Um, is it all encompassing and is any information we provide today all encompassing? The answer to that is no. We're gonna give you the highlights and the things that we've received questions on. Um, over the past couple of weeks. So it really talks about what's in it for fire and EMS. And I'm sure some of you have heard about this 1135 waiver. And I think this is something that's very important. You know, as I look at it as CMS has been sitting there with this new shiny car, but it has no engine. Well, because of the 1135 waiver, um, we're now able to put that engine in that car. And if they choose, and that's a big, big discussion point right now, if they choose, they can then drive this car. And Chuck will go into more detail on, on that here in just a few seconds. Um, we're gonna talk and concentrate primarily on treatment in place. A uh, lot of in misinformation, a lot of speculation on what this is. We hope to clear this up uh, as well as the OIG funding. We'll talk a little bit about provider relief funding and some small business support because believe it or not, you folks who operate ambulances in many regards can be construed as a small business. Uh, we'll talk about payroll protection plan, which many of you I know already have taken great advantage of. I think it's out there for you. And uh, so please, you know, I know, and we've seen, um, I, I know my colleague Ed Marasco is on this call. He's not speaking today, but I know Ed and I were talking not all that long ago about how hard this has been for ambulance services across the country, regardless of your size um, and your location, be it um, urban or rural, whatever it might be, how hard it has been to stay alive. And, you know, as we look, Chuck, and I don't know if you, you look at this, but as we look at the analytics, it seems like just everybody's starting to recover, but, you know, EMS is not like, um, you know, a, a tennis shoe sale where you can offer a sale at the end of the year to make up for lost time. Um, you know, a lot of them are hurting and it's, you know, it was tough for ambulance services to make ends meet, even in the best of times. And then this time last year, we got hit with this pandemic and it's been a challenge ever since. So uh, surely we are here to help you and educate you as much, much as we can. But at the end of the day, we do recognize um, how challenging it has been for you. So uh, given that uh, you have my uh, utmost respect, trying to keep afloat in this very, very, very challenging time we live in. And we'll talk a little bit about economic injury and disaster alone as we go through today's program. Slide please. Continuing on a little bit more, uh, as far as the uh, HR 13 goes, workforce, uh, uh, and workplace support, mental health funding. Of course, uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with uh, FICRA, that of course is the Families First uh, Coronavirus Response Act that talks more about family leave and expended, uh, extended family services. The CARES Act, which if you're not familiar with the CARES Act right now, uh, you're probably living under a rock, folks, um, because this <laughs> has been out there for a while. Many of you have take, taken advantage of it uh, since probably uh, April of last year when, uh, when funding came available. Increased funding to the DOL for worker protection, first responder and other essential worker support. And of course, we're talking about the AFG, which is the Assistance for Firefighters grant. And um, the IAWF is also administering the, the SAFER staffing for adequate uh, firefighter and emergency response. And I believe that's being administered through FEMA. So 
And then this is really what it comes right down to. This section really deals with the crux of the emergency medical services side. And it says it has secretarial authority to temporary waiver or modify application of certain Medicare requirements with respect to ambulance services furnished during certain emergency periods. And this is what we're gonna concentrate on today as we go through the program and Chuck will speak more to this. And finally, here's all the text. And I think it says a lot here, but at the end, it really says, uh, when we talk about the treatment in place, it says any requirement under section uh, 1861 subsection or section that an ambulance service includes the transport of an individual to the extent necessary to allow payment for ground ambulance services furnished in response to a 911 call in cases in which an individual would have been transported to a destination permitted under Med Medicare regulations in section 410, code of federal regulations, and here's the key points, folks, and this is really where we're putting that engine, as we spoke of earlier, in that car, but such transport did not occur as a result of community-wide emergency medical services protocols, and we'll really clarify today those protocols and, and how that works and how that comes into play for your specific area. And Chuck, we have uh, folks joining us from about 17 different states today. So, um, you know, it may not be the same for all of you. Uh, protocols due to the public health emergency. So some changes there. Um, this is not going to be a carte blanche that, uh, you know, we're talking about uh, community paramedicine or treat no transport. There's, it's very, and I think the operative word here, Chuck, correct me if I'm wrong, is restrictive. Yes, and, uh, very if, much so. Yep. And this is where you have to understand. So um, I actually warmed up the audience here for you, Chuck. I'm going to turn it over to you at this point uh, to, to better right. educate our guests. And again, folks, questions. Uh, feel free to hit that Q&A button. We'll be glad to answer them for you. Chuck? Yeah, well, thanks, Gary. Um, so, you know, we're, we're really going to scratch the surface today, folks. As Gary told you, so much in this and so much can apply or not apply to you. We really want to focus on this one section, primarily for the bulk of our time together today, because it's the most pertinent thing to your world. And to how we intersect here at QuickMed Claims with all of you. So we're gonna focus on this, um, kind of sub-focus on uh, public relief, and then uh, we'll just um, skim through some of the other things just to make you aware. So this 1135 provision, this language um, was actually part of Senate Bill 149, which they rolled into the final act. So they kind of combined two initiatives together and out of that came what's going on. Now the background is uh, for this provision <clears throat> is I want to talk to you about what it's not. I thought it was important to focus on so we get rid of all of the misconceptions but where we can talk about the meat of what we know right now. I will tell you that it is not yet in place and I want to make this clear. So immediately after the legislation came down and then some emails floated and which typically happens within our world, um, we got a couple questions right off the bat um, and no problem. You can, some of you are very astute, very on top of it. I applaud you for that. You should be on top of this, okay? But we started getting questions. Well, okay, now what do we, what do, we do with this? Well, put the brakes on, okay? Because this isn't yet in place. And I must tell you that um, this is not just related to COVID pandemic. So let's, let's make that point as well. So 
in order for this to happen, for the language in the act to take place, CMS must issue an 1135 waiver in order to make this part of our current scenario, okay? Um, I checked just a few minutes ago um, on all the websites that I normally uh, monitor and it has not rolled down yet. So I just wanna make that point. In fact, uh, our friends at the American Ambulance Association have done a great job in uh, uh, doing their advocacy uh, are being cautious about all of us <clears throat> not going crazy because CMS has made a lot of warnings that if we see people and it looks like they're going to go, you know, off the rails and start sending us claims that aren't authorized, we're going to put up, you know, we may never come out with this. So let me caution all of you that you don't want to go out saying, oh, I just did this webinar and now we can bill for every, no, that's not the case. Okay. So we'll make that point not yet in play yet. Um, however, typically what has happened, especially through this COVID pandemic, when Congress has rolled out language and issued these allowances, CMS has acted on them. So we hope and we anticipate that there's a huge possibility that they may do so, but it's not yet. So the next thing that this is not, it is not a fundamental change in Medicare for normal times when there is no emergency situation. So folks, we're often asked, does this authorize payment by Medicare for treatment, no transport? What we consider in our industry, treatment, no transport. Go out to the scene, get called on a 911. We assess the patient. The patient may need to go, may not need to go. The patient says, no, I don't think I, I want to go. They may um, uh, reject being transported against medical advice or an AMA, and, and we do our nice little refusal form and we go back and play, okay? Um, this is not that. Um, and I also, you know, on a slide coming up, I'll talk about ET3. This is not ET3. And we'll talk about that in a minute. So I just want to make that. Again, this language is not restricted to COVID. So what COVID has done, and it's very interesting to watch this, COVID has accelerated where we thought the industry was going. So COVID has accelerated even the possibility that CMS may one day make blanket change, okay? Um, so this is not restricted. It is now law, and the language allows for CMS in any public health emergency. This could be a natural disaster that sparks a PHE. It could be, God forbid, another pandemic. Whatever the case may be, it allows them to make this change for the moment during the emergency um, until we get a permanent fix, okay? Also want to make a point to any of you that are on the call that only do transports and are not doing 911 responses. This will not affect you if it is even put in play. So this is not for the non-emergency transport. It only applies to the 911 scenario. And that would be the definition that CMS rolls out for an emergency, which would be a 911 or an equivalent call in areas without 911, which I think most areas now have a 911 solution. And you take the necessary steps to respond as quickly as possible. So the only possibility if CMS enacts this waiver will be for emergency 911 following the definition in the CMS rules and will not apply to inner facility, okay? And then finally, 
we're getting questions. Well, do I have to have a telehealth component? Well, again, we're kind of mixing it all up in our brains. And it's, I, I got to tell you, it's, it's easy to do because first my mind went to that as well. Um, in this case, there does not have to be a telehealth component. Now, it may be in your system, part of your enacted protocols, regionally, area-wide, even your own, your, your own individual service, that there may be a telehealth element to this. But what we're talking about is the ability here for ambulance to bill for their part of this treatment in place without that other component. So just want to make that point that if and when this is enacted and the language is followed at any point does not mean that another health professional has to be out there doing an assessment via telecomponent. Okay. G, how are we doing here? Looking good. Keep going. All right. Good. All right. So let's talk about this treatment in place. What I loved about, and I really, again, give props to the AAA, um, when they mentioned this, they said, you have to think of this philosophically as not necessarily treatment in place, but treatment in lieu of transportation. It's a big, um, it's, it's, it really sets your mind correctly if you think about it. So I draw back to the original language in the act, which says, in cases which an individual would have been transported to a destination permitted under Medicare regulations. So think about what we're reading here. If in a normal time, minus an emergency, you would have arrived on the scene of a 911 and reasonably would have expected to transport this patient and you didn't because of the emergency, then it would enact this treatment in place provision. So let's look at it. So first of all, again, the CMS emergency definition would be in play. It must be a 911 or equivalent in areas without a 911 and you take the necessary steps to respond as quickly as possible. <clears throat> so under normal circumstances, and I mean minus any declaration of a public health emergency, the patient's emergency would have resulted in a transport but the public health emergency dictated that there would be no transport at this time due to some barrier that was put in place by your regional or local governing authority for protocol. So that brings up our discussion about what community-wide protocols mean as part of this language. So again, I'm going to go back to the original language, states this, but such transport did not occur as a result of the community-wide emergency medical service or EMS protocols due to the public health emergency. Point out two key phrases there, community-wide emergency protocols and due to, big words, the public health emergency. So let's take a look. And this is where we get a little muddy, I got to tell you. So these are protocols that would be established and improved by an oversight body. So let's stop there for a minute and just talk about what that means. So this is not necessarily in most states and in most regions, 
you're going to your local medical director say, doctor, I need you to change our protocols right away and put this in place because we want to start billing for treatment in place. That is not that, except, except for one state that I do know, I can say definitively that could be the case. And that would be this great state of Texas because Texas does allow their medical directors for each individual service to make protocol, initiate protocol changes. Most of the rest of us are tied to some kind of an oversight body. Now that could be the State Department of Health. It could be an EHS region like we have in Pennsylvania, like we have in New York, like a number of different areas. It could be um, uh, any type of oversight body regionally, locally, statewide that directs your protocol that you answer to for approvals. So what I want to call out is, is that payment, if this is put in place, would only begin with the effective date of that updated protocol as it is approved. So the question arose, if CMS, like they have with other waivers, made the, make the waiver retroactive back to the beginning of the pandemic. So one year ago, when the PHE was declared, many of the waivers that were issued, the blanket waivers, the individual waivers that were issued by CMS were made retroactive to the declaration of the public health emergency. If CMS does this, that would mean that potentially you could go back and bill any treatment in place. However, it would not be effective unless your protocol update, which specifically would state we're updating this protocol to limit transport due to the coronavirus public health emergency as of. So let's say they do it retro back to March of last year, or February, whenever that PHE, February, late February, I think, or early March was when the PHE was declared. And your protocol wasn't updated till June when you decided that you were not going to be transporting to the local ER because they didn't want to potentially have that ER population infected, or they didn't want incoming patients to potentially be infected by patients already there that were COVID positive, then it would only be a retroactive billing provision back to the day when that protocol update was put in place and improved by your oversight body, whatever oversight mechanism that is. So that's another key point we need to make. If we ever get the chance to do this and they do retroactivity, it may not for you be retro back to the beginning of the PHE. So um, what we'll need to know from you at QMC as your billing agent will be eventually, what is that protocol? How do you represent that? What is the date of the effectiveness so we can properly make sure that we're compliant with those rules? Because we could submit a claim, say in March, if your protocol wasn't updated until May, two years later, they audit and say, well, you weren't eligible for payment for that. If they retro it back to the beginning, they most likely will not have edits to not allow payment for that equal to whatever that beginning date is they would audit, find out you didn't have protocol in place, and that potentially would be an overpayment. So 
you know, the compliance side of me, which I uh, share a part of my duties in that team every day, just wants to make sure that you guys understand that when your billing team and client success uh, people under Gary's uh, team there uh, ask you for some identifying support documentation, we're not being overly crazy. We're making sure that we don't get you in a pickle later on and bill something that we shouldn't have billed because your protocols didn't support it. Okay. So again, how are we going to build this? Well, here's the implementation part. So is this just for Medicare? No. Now, CMS is going to issue the waiver if they do, and then that will cover payment by Medicare. But that does not mean that other payers have to adopt this, including Medicaid. So um, what you'll need to be doing right now, and I would strongly suggest if you have um, your local municipal body, you yourself, your state organizations have the ears of your legislators on a state level, really should also be talking to your uh, federal legislators, although they've already done their thing by passing the language, um, they may want to push CMS to implement. It wouldn't be bad to be talking in their ear. But now's also a time for these organizations and you to be having a discussion with your state lawmakers about adopting parallel waivers that will allow Medicaid to pay for these services. And then those of you that are in a contracting relationship, uh, preferred provider relationship with your payers, you should be having conversations with them. Are you going to pay for treatment in place? Medicare's doing it. Will you follow suit? Because they're not bound by CMS's 1135 waiver. Many of them may follow, but it's not a given. So you want to be advocating right now and say, hey, we think this is going to happen. What are you going to do when it does? It'd be good to be proactive with that. And even post, if they issue that uh, waiver, um, you want to be on top of that and get them to pay this as well. And, and you know, really the speak here, folks, is to talk to them about how this may be a cost savings for them. You know, we're not going to be transporting, so you're not going to have uh, mileage. You're not going to pay for the ER bill. Uh, so really this is saving you money. Will you consider paying us for what we're doing in the field? I think it's an effective argument. It certainly is what's driving Congress to consider this as well. Now, when we bill on your behalf, you will be billing for the two emergency base rates, either an ALS level or BLS uh, level. And that's uh, predicated on level of dispatch. If you're a priority dispatch, it, it would be predicated on uh, the care level uh, potentially provided based on the um, uh, medical emergency or the um, scenario that's in play. So you would be paid for just the base rate, of course, not mileage because you didn't transport. Again, protocol changes identified in writing. So now is the time if you don't have protocol changes to be working with your body to do that. And also let's talk about the documentation part of this because Gary and I spend a lot of time doing documentation training. We just did one yesterday. We've got one tomorrow. Um, so we do a lot of this. So how will your providers document? You want to be talking with them about documenting these similar to AMAs. So cover all, you know, dot all your uh, I's and cross all your T's. This is a case where you're going out assessing, you're not transporting. You're the final definitive decision 
in whether or not they're going to be transported, or maybe you're contacting uh, medical command, and if that's the case, but you want to be documenting your language pointing back to the protocol. So due to protocol number one, two, three, four, five, in light of the PHE, um, we are not transporting this patient and then cite, you know, whatever the reason was why you decided not to. And, and I know in the system where I'm still active, um, we're uh, actually an ET3 participant, uh, very proud of that. And uh, also um, uh, we have some COVID protocols in place where, you know, we're transporting alternative destinations, we're doing treatment in place with telehealth uh, component. And uh, we have certain criteria that we've been given um, that we have to make sure that we're uh, checking off the boxes in our flows um, in order to justify either taking a patient to an alternative destination or treating in place using telehealth and including the telehealth professional. So you will probably and most likely um, be reviewing that with your medical directors, uh, with your state uh, organizations, your uh, governing bodies about what's the proper way to check off and arrive at the decision that this patient in this moment, um, you know, qualifies for remaining in the residence or remaining at the scene and not being transported uh, that, you know, still remains in the best interest of the patient and is not detrimental to their final health. So that documentation, you know, really these are like refusals, guys, and we all understand the legalities around refusals. We don't want to take these lightly. So make sure now you're beginning to think about how am I going to um, talk to my people about what their best practices should be in their charting, uh, in their charting practices. Chuck, we have a question. Yeah. The question is, this comes from our good friend in Connecticut. Doesn't this seem to be a bit late in the pandemic? Yeah. Um, yes, Mark, it, it does. I agree with you. However, uh, what you have to understand is, is um, nobody really at the governmental level understood at the time, and I hate to say understands now, except for some lawmakers who are very plugged in or our former EMS or healthcare providers, really understood the impact that the EMS community would have. In fact, I can tell you, I think in reading what I read and talking with the people that we interact with every day, I think some legislators we're of the opinion that our call volume would spike and we'd be more busy and we'd just be raking in all these dollars. And they didn't think that our, the bottom would drop out because people wouldn't, didn't wanna to go to the hospital. People weren't on the move. We weren't moving patients from SNFs for appointments and diagnostic treatments and surgical uh, you know, uh, procedures. And they didn't count on the fact that while our run volume was going down, which means potentially our cash flow went down, our costs were going up due to added PPE, due to our people getting infected, having to pay overtime. So I think it is late and I think they're playing catch up. Uh, the other thing is, and I'll talk in a minute about this, is um, I think that they were just beginning to evaluate with the beginning of the ET3 program and thought they had time to evaluate the overall effects of what telehealth would be treatment in place. Look, a year ago, we had no idea that such a balloon in telehealth would happen. And even though this isn't specifically telehealth, I say that because all of a sudden our paradigm in 
healthcare in this country, especially, has changed. It's it's shifted into another gear that I don't think any of us could notice. And Gary and I talk all the time. We laugh about this, but you know, he and I have enough gray on our hair that we talk about Johnny and Roy running around in the mid seventies in that Squad Fifty One. That was like the next thing in EMS. We're we're witnessing right now what EMS is about to become, and it's about to become all about our being treating the patient rather than transporting the patient. It's about not looking at paramedicine in the field, but it's looking at treating a patient medically in the field using varied resources of which EMS just happens to be one of them. So I think we're behind the eight ball, but we're catching up fast. Uh, we have just um, raised the awareness of our lawmakers. Uh, I think that we're getting the message across to them that we may, some of us, or the whole industry in America, and I, I hate to be a doomsday, Sarah, because I sound like an old man, but we may be, you know, in crisis mode. Uh, and I don't think anybody on this call that's involved in EMS doesn't agree with, with, with me in some form that we're, you know, we're, many of us are taking a deep breath and wondering what tomorrow is going to bring. And because of that, I think that our legislators are finally hearing us and they're taking notice of that. And we're kind of closing the barn door after the horse is out. But I think that, you know, we're playing catch up and I agree with you, but I think this is a great step in the right uh, direction that we're seeing that, that awakening. And, and I'm hoping that it only goes up from here. All thank right. You. Thank you for the question, Mark. Yeah, thanks, Mark, appreciate it. So before we move on, I've got to the next section here to tie together. This is kind of hidden in everything else because it's very, it's very little limited mention of this. But I want to call to all your attention that additional $5 million was given to the Health and Human Services Office of Inspector General to do audits. So remember when we talked with all of you about what we saw coming down the road, you know, uh, especially with regards to the uh, provider relief, uh, the CARES funds how you needed to account for that, how you need to keep meticulous records. And even in your documentation for ambulance runs, uh, we have already seen with the lightning of the coronavirus and we're starting to see the light at the end of the tunnel, um, things like the certified error rate testing audits that the uh, Medicare administrator contractors have to do. They've all started to ratchet up and they just didn't pick up where they left off. They're kind of going retro and saying, oh, we got to catch up. We got to do all these audits. We've seen that happen coming in. Those routine audits, all of a sudden, uh, we've, we've kind of had um, a, 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 you know, a swell of them. Uh, in addition, $5 million, now $5 million doesn't seem like a lot, but it's an additional amount of funding for additional auditing and review of how you are spending those monies. So remember, and I won't spend a lot of time on this, but those of you who have gotten the provider relief fund, um, you had to already begin reporting of what you spent in 2020. If you got second round or you didn't spend all your money in 2020, you have through mid-year now to uh, you know, report what you're spending in 2021. So you want to make sure that you're keeping meticulous uh, records of that. You're keeping all your receipts. You're keeping a ledger. You're keeping your, your loss statements uh, because all of that will some point Somebody's going to knock on your door electronically and say, hey, we want to review how you spent that. We want to review those monies and what you did with it. And you want to make sure that you're, you have everything to present to them in a timely fashion because there's more leeway into looking into that. And here is that additional funding for that. Chuck, question. Yes. 
though the question is this comes from our good friends in Arizona uh, the question is how do you feel the impact will be positive or negative on ET3 well first of all when you when you ask about ET3 um, ET3 is a program that Congress and CMS is very much invested in and very interested in so what we have, and I would have brought this up, but now you bring it up, I'm going to, I'll say this and maybe we'll reiterate later on. Um, I think this is going to bolster ET3. So in the moment when this language was issued, CMS basically said, look, we're not making a total blanket change in allowing for payment for treatment in place yet because we have the ET3 program and we're going to be examining the results of that after that program is finished to look at what the impact is. So they basically said, look, we think that we're going to find that this is going to save the program money. We think we're going to find that this is something we're going to want to adopt. So we're limiting right now our language to emergencies to get you through until we have time to look at ET3 and pull all the results and make an informed decision on whether we put these changes definitively in place for the long term. So I think the effect on ET3, it's going to throw the spotlight on it. I think that the um, Congress and the, and the CMS uh, are going to be much more in tune and focused to the results on that. And I think they will act quicker on those results than they would have normally. You know, now is what's quicker? Well, maybe after ET3, it would have taken them five years to roll things in place. And now it'll take two. I don't have a crystal ball, folks. But I can tell you that I think this is much more on the radar screen than it ever was. I think it can only bolster and magnify um, the efforts of those who were chosen for the ET3 program. I agree. I couldn't agree more, Chuck. I think it's well stated. One more question for you. A um, little bit of a lengthy one here. Are we moving to the EMS providers providing triage? And while I think this is a is good, some are used to only to be asked to provide quick on-site care or getting the patient to the emergency department. Will there be additional best practice in the field training for providers to feel comfortable make these types of decisions without them feeling like they need to continue to document against medical advice? That's a really great question. Um, well put. Thank you very much. Um, I think we are moving to that. I think we're moving where we're part of the healthcare continuum. I think we're moving to, um, you know, in some parts of the country for several years, they have had um, medical health professionals, doctors in, you know, uh, fly cars and squads responding. Um, making decisions in dispatch centers about what services are sent ultimately. Um, I think we're moving to where we're a, we're a bigger piece of the puzzle and not a standalone entity. And you know, when you think about, I think about when I started, um, Gary, you started mid seventies, I started around in 1986. Um, we were still largely in the scoop and run phase. You know, when I came in, we were doing a little bit more hands-on than you, you know, you became a medic, I know. And so we started doing more hands-on and then we slowly were moving out of starting to, you know, a set, but we still, our end goal was transport, transport, transport. 
I think with technology, especially with telehealth, I think with the ability uh, that we have of what we've learned over the past 30 or 40 years of modern EMS, we now are better equipped and we've learned so much more and have become so much more of the healthcare continuum. You think about all of our colleagues, Gary, that didn't take our route and got into the business end of it, that moved on from paramedicine up through into nursing. And, you know, maybe some of them I know became uh, physicians. We have a physician that was, you know, started out as an EMT and a paramedic at a local ambulance in, in our system here. Um, I think that we're seeing just the natural progression of that. And we've all advocated for years on a pride factor to become healthcare professionals, be considered not just ambulance drivers, okay? And I think that we're seeing that now. Now, as far as education, I think you'll see a natural flow to that. I think that once we establish these protocols, we're gonna to have to change how we instruct new um, EMTs and medics in the system to um, handle the, and we just had a whole round of education on telemedicine, how to simply use those fancy devices, you know? And I think that we're using tablets in the field. You and I used to use a pencil and pen and dot matrix forms. And now we're, you know, checking boxes on, on a EPCR program. So I just think that our education will morph over time into how do we do this? And it'll roll out at a state level to where our certification levels will match and mirror what we're attempting to do in the field. So it's a great question. Again, I can't speak for the credentialing bodies, but I think if we're gonna go this route and it seems that we are, we're gonna have to change our education uh, to not be a scoop and run type of mindset, but to be a true patient care advocate and look at ourselves as, as being part of the patient care loop and being one cog in that machine. Okay, thanks for those questions, they're great. Um, questions. All right, so let's move off of that for a minute and then we can loop back around if there's any lingering questions. I wanna talk about the provider relief fund for a minute. Um, $8.5 billion is a lot of money folks, but if, this is a targeted allocation. So not targeted in the sense that you're automatically gonna receive it like we did round one way back a year almost ago. This is an application process for the next round of funding and I will tell you that it's tied only to rural providers and suppliers. Now, I'm gonna qualify that in a minute, so stand by. But uh, the American Ambulance Association has vowed to advocate for those of you who are urban-based. So if you have your headquarters in an urban region, but you serve a rural area population, that you will be potentially included in this funding tranche. So don't despair. Um, at the very least, apply even if you think you're marginal, what's it hurt to do the application and just be denied? Nothing. There's nothing wrong with that. I would suggest that if you're thinking you may uh, be uh, qualified for this, you should apply. But let's take a look. So it is a targeted allocation for those providers and supplier. Yes, thank you. So Brian, I, I do have a, I just saw that question pop up, Gare. Um, I do have a definition. So these are, Entities that are located in a rural area, which is pursuant to Section 1886 D8 D&E of the Social Security Act. Okay, and what that basically boils down to, and I could this is a whole webinar in itself. All right, but it boils down to the census areas, which there are nine of them in the statistical areas uh, throughout the United States, where you fall into a metro statistical area 
or where your state supersedes that and designates a rural area. How do we boil this down for this particular presentation? Well, I would tell you that if you are one of those entities that receive the uh, rural or super rural uh, add-on payment, then I would think you probably are in a rural area, okay? Can't say that definitively because I'm talking to a wide range, all right? Also, if you're in an area that falls outside of a metro area that has 100,000 people in that general designated area, it's possible that you fall into that rural area as well. You can call up Section 1886 D, A, D and E, and you can read that mumbo jumbo, and I literally say it is mumbo jumbo, uh, but I will tell you that um, uh, in looking at the National Law Review this morning and just kind of re-educating myself to what that rural definition is, it says that the definition of rural captures traditionally rural providers and suppliers, but is broad enough to potentially render an eligible member in an urban provider supplier area as well, okay? So it is a very broad definition based on census tract. I would suggest if you have questions, you can probably go to your local municipality, talk with your um, administrators there, your borough manager, your town manager, city you know, officials, um, where do they fall? Because this also often falls in taxation areas and also falls in areas where for funding and grants, and you should be able to relatively tell where you fall. Um, so it is complicated. Uh, there's also, I will tell you, if you go out on um, um, the um, census website, the US census website, there's some really good information. Google Rural America Census, and you will find uh, some maps that have color-coded areas you should be able to uh, reasonably pinpoint where you fall on that rural designation maps. And I think that's area wide for you, uh, probably will give you some good information, way too much more than we have time to get into today. But I think that would be helpful for you. So when you're submitting that application, just remember you are submitting actual healthcare related expenses and you're accounting for lost revenues directly attributable to COVID-19 pandemic that are not reimbursed by other sources. Same basic underlie that uh, was in place for the original uh, CARES Act tranches uh, apply to this. If you're reimbursed for other things by other means, then you may not be able to count that as a loss. You have to look at direct losses related to the pandemic um, and not tied to any uh, other business type of losses. So you have to be able to separate that out and that will be part of that application process. Okay, now we're gonna go real quick through cause I do wanna allow time for questions at the end, but just to make you guys aware, $50 billion in disaster relief funds are part of this act, uh, specifically for vaccination efforts and PPE for the front line. And this goes into use of the military for vaccines. You may be involved in a vaccine program. Of course, you know, just the other day, and we didn't even uh, have this in part of our slides because it doesn't relate directly to the act, but uh, the administration um, allows now for a higher payment for vaccine administration. It was $16 and, <coughs> excuse me, $16 and change for vaccine one, $28 and change vaccine two. It's now $40 across the board. 
So that's a, a little better uh, because the administration is really wanting to get more people involved. So that may be something you want to take uh, avail of. And of course, we've talked before about the roster billing and what that means. And again, another whole webinar, $100 million more for the AFG grants, $200 million more for the SAFERS. So those of you that typically tap into that, there's more money out there. Uh, get with your grant people, um, municipalities on that. Uh, for those of you that are uh, small business, um, you know, private businesses, uh, payroll protection plan is another 7.25 bill, uh, $15 a billion more for EIDLs. Um, and that's targeted folks for those that haven't already received it. Also allows for what they call community navigator to be set up. So the federal government is going to set these up to help you as a small business navigate. So you might want to make avail of that. That's a, a public thing that will kind of be like, we, I think in our world, we think of patient advocates. This is somebody you can walk you through that process if you're a little confused, uh, tap into that, search for those in your general location. Of course, workforce support, uh, mental health grants, big mental health. They're starting to realize uh, crisis team support. You know, many of us have CISD teams, uh, critical incident stress uh, uh, um, operations. There's money out there to support that. There's an 8515 Medicaid match for mental health professionals through the year 2026. So that means in your uh, workplace, if you have people that are suffering through the stress of all this, uh, especially in areas where there was a high infection rate, you might want to employ and bring in a mental health professional, which would be offset on their costs to help your people kind of talk through this. Uh, great thing to take avail of. There's money available for that. Um, there's uh, new employee retention credit extensions. Uh, for those of you that pay taxes, there is now refundable credits against employer share of social security tax up to 70% or up to 10,000 per employee per quarter. Um, and then uh, health plan expenses now are also considered part of employee wages. Best thing I can tell you in bold, get an accountant, talk with them, get your finance guys in city hall, talk with them. Um, don't go this alone because you wanna find out what's for you, but you also wanna find out what's appropriately for you as well. Workplace support, $150 million to the Department of Labor. Uh, things like um, increased OSHA regulatory oversight and enforcement, unemployment insurance, um, you know, uh, increases and uh, continuation through September of 2023. Um, public health workforce. I will tell you that this act strongly focuses and is targeted to local and state governments. So those of you that are on the call that are municipal based, um, there's a significant mention of all things public service. Uh, $7.6 billion out of treasury uh, specific for bolstering your um, workforces. So uh, you do want to be aware of that. Again, get with your public. Don't go this alone. This is a team effort. All hands on deck. Get with your local governments. Get with your city halls. Get with your county commissioners and uh, get on board with all this because there's money out there. And uh, some of this feedback from the first rounds from the public sector spoke to the fact that they felt they were dissed. Well, this is meant to correct that. 7.6 billion is no drop in the bucket, folks. So it's out there for you. Uh, grab it if you can. Okay. Wow, I'm out of breath. Gee, uh, open for questions, folks. Uh, I hope we, and again, we have just scratched the surface. No way we could cover all of this. But um, I'm hoping what we did was raise your awareness, clarify things, 
um, because we want to make sure we get the best information out for our clients. You know what, Gary, I, I really, I want to, you know, I appreciate the fact that our um, executive leadership team, the folks that we answer to allow us to do these things. Um, this is something that I think um, is so important to support our clients, uh, something that I'm proud to be part of, but more than that, just proud of the organization that we are that enables us to do these kind of value-added things. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we, you and I um, know a lot of these clients, have worked with them for many years, and, and I'm hopeful that this is helpful in helping to release some of your stress out there uh, and, uh, and help us get you pointed in the right direction um, so you can take avail of all of the measures uh, to support, you know, just the amazing things that you guys are all doing. And that's not me. I say I'm still in the field. I'm only in the field a fraction of time of what all of you are. So, you know, it's kind of a, it's kind of, uh, it's a joke to me when I say that because I'm proud to be a provider, but I'm certainly not out there every day like, like you guys and girls are. And I just don't have enough all. So this is some way I feel, I don't know about you, G, that we're giving back from the office chair into what they're doing in the field on an everyday basis. Absolutely. I definitely echo your sentiments, Chuck. And, uh, you know, having lived on uh, their side of the street, as you currently still do, is we understand that it's it's not easy keeping one's head above the water. And uh, if this helps one person, then it was worth the time and effort uh, that was put into this presentation and all the presentations uh, that we've done throughout this long pandemic, long public health emergency. Um, and along those lines, I've had a couple questions uh, just coming in, coming in about, you know, will the slides and presentation be available? So uh, what we do folks is we do not share our slides uh, for a number of different reasons, but uh, I will tell you that we will be uploading the presentation to our private YouTube channel. Uh, if you would like uh, a copy of the link, then just please email us at covidhelp, that's C-O-V-I-D help, at quickmedclaims.com, and we will drop you the link. Uh, on top of doing these presentations, we're also video editors too. So give us some time to uh, to, to get it done. Um, it's not an MGM production, but it'll it has worked well in the past. And uh, as always, if you do have questions, um, both clients and friends, we are happy to answer them for you. Uh, that hashtag "We're all in this together" surely applies to to this. So. Don't be afraid to use us as a resource should you need us. Uh, we may not always get back to you right away. Uh, we wanna make sure we're research and give you good answers to your questions and, um, and respond as best we can to all of those. So, um, and then finally, I just a couple of things here. Uh, in addition to the, uh, the, the uh, program being available on our private YouTube channel, uh, we also upload the audio track um, to our podcast channel which is the QMC EMS board and caller. You can search it for it on virtually any of the podcast channels out there, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, iHeartRadio, uh, Deezer. There's dozens of them. We're on all of them. Uh, just search that. We have over 140 episodes of different programs ranging from everything from COVID information to grant funding to documentation and everything in between. Uh, fortunately, just to kind of pat ourselves on the back, we just went over 10,000 downloads of our programs in um, January. And so tune in, take a look. And this program will also be 
on there. So if you have a long drive home from the office, uh, like I do most days, not today, um, but like I do, uh, it's something to, to catch up on some things because I know all of you are busy, but it is so, so incredibly important to stay abreast of these things because things change rapidly. And like the one question I believe that Mark asked, you know, why is this now? Well, you know, we can't always answer the question as to why, but it's important for us to get the word out to you. So um, we're, we're glad to do it. Chuck, thank you for your time on this. And um, thanks to um, all nearly 100 of you that attended today. And um, we hope to do more. Uh, we surely hope to do less about this pandemic. Um, that would make us all feel a lot better. And, uh, but if it's relevant and important to our industry, uh, we will do our best to, to bring it to you with good science and research behind everything we present. So Chuck, is there anything else you wanted to add? No, just thanks. And, um, you know, this is a fluid situation. So <laughs> we'll sign off here today and two minutes from now, we'll get a listserv alert and things will all change. So be, yeah. you know, be aware. Um, we will certainly roll out any communication that we can if things change. If the waiver is granted, you'll certainly hear from us and I'm sure everybody else in the industry. So uh, again, thanks uh, for spending time with us. And, sure. uh, uh, and be, just be careful out there. Thank you, Chuck. And, and lastly, most importantly, uh, thanks for those of, that carried the ball and distributed the information about today's program, uh, specifically our good friends at Eastern PA uh, EMS Council, John Kloss. I see John was online with us today. Thank you, John, and our good friends at Ninth Brain. Uh, I know many of you are their clients as well as ours. And of course, our wonderful group of clients and friends that are with us here today, as well as our colleagues who gave up some of their time to better educate themselves so they can better help um, all of our client partners out there. Uh, thank you for the well wishes, Steve, and all you anonymous folks that, that said thanks. That makes us feel good. And uh, we'll continue to do these for you in the future as well. So with that, I will say thank you. And Chuck, thank you again. And hey, be safe out there. Hey.